Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. I want to invite you to stay updated with me on social media and see what we are doing in the ministry. You can follow me on Facebook at John Wallace. You can follow me on Instagram at Jonathan R. Wallace. And you can follow our YouTube page at New Beginnings Huntington. I pray this message builds your faith and gives you revelation. Let's get ready for the Word of God. As we read this tonight, the Holy Spirit would give us revelation, knowledge, and understanding. That our eyes would be open to things that we've never seen before. And that we would be fueled to run our race and to to keep going and uh, just get a midweek sustenance. It's going to be amazing, Lord. We're just so thankful for this word. And we hold it in high honor. And And we just thank you for it. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. We all we finished up Romans 1 last week. This week we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn on over there Romans chapter 2. Let's just go ahead and get into this. I encourage you, if you have another translation, that's cool. I may call on you and you, you, we may read out of different translations as we go through this. We've been doing that for the last few weeks. So let's just start in verses 1 through 3. Let's just get right into this. Romans chapter 2. Uh, let me give you some backstory first. So we've been talking about themes. So one of the major themes of the book of Romans is in the first three chapters. If you study this like a, as, a, as a, uh, you know, just a, lit- a piece of literature, in literature there's different themes. There's different main points that are trying to be communicated. And the main theme in the first three chapters of the book of Romans is the sinfulness of all men. So when you read it, you have to understand, you have to put it in this context that Paul is building this case that we're going to see in chapter 3 where all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. That's really important for you to know that and understand that because again, we'll look at this specifically, but people can actually cherry pick verses and assign a false identity to God. And I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to talk about that. But you just need to understand the, the, the part of the, the letter that we're in right now is Paul is actually building a case. Why do you need a Savior? So he's trying to show people that they need a Savior. And then when we get into chapter 3 and chapter 4, he's going to give them the solution to the problem that he's exposing in their lives. So let's go ahead and read verses 1-3. through three. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. What you, when you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these same very things. And we know that God and His justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same Thanks. So to break this down, let's go back up in your Bible to Romans 1. Let's read 29 through 32. Let's get a little bit of context here. So again, you have to understand when Paul wrote this, we'll just look at this as a prime example. When Paul wrote this, he didn't write it in chapters. This was one continuous letter. So that's kind of where we mess up is we'll just skip on over to Romans chapter 3, right? Or Romans chapter 4, and we're picking up right in the middle of a... a, right in the middle of a subject or right in the middle of a conversation that he's having. And it's like we do like with the media, right? We hated it when they did it to President Trump, but they would isolate like one little thing that he said and build an entire narrative behind it. We do the exact same thing with the scripture. 
So that's why it's really important that you learn how to read the Scripture before. You know, get some context. Read what's happening before. Read what's happening after. And really figure out what the Bible is saying. So let's read in verse 29. So Paul, he's talking about these Gentiles, right? He's trying to prove to these Gentiles that you need Jesus Christ. That you have fallen short. You've sinned. And he says this. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. So, this is really funny. What Paul's doing is he's actually setting this up. So these people are reading, right? And they're doing what most Christians like to do, which is point out the flaws of everybody else. Am I right? But our Christians like to do that, like to point our finger and look at other people and try to convince ourselves somehow how we're better than, you know, than them. And so Paul's listing all these things. They're, they're, they, they're wicked, they're sin, they're full of greed, envy, murder. He lists this whole list of stuff. And I can imagine these people are just sitting there like, yeah, yeah, those people are horrible. Yeah, those people, you know what, they do deserve the judgment of God. They do deserve hell. I agree, Paul. I really think that they're, you know, I, just, I don't know why God doesn't just kill them right now. And look what he says in chapter 2. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these same very things. And we know that God and His justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think God, you can avoid the, God's judgment when you do the very same things? So, I kind of want to show you something that Paul is doing here. Again, let's put it in context of the theme. He is setting this up, right? He's talking about the sins of all these people. You guys do all of these things. And, then, and now he's saying, there's these people looking over here saying, yeah, they're, they're horrible. They do do that. And then Paul's looking at them and saying, you can't talk at all. You do the same things that they do. And then we're going to get into a bit here in a moment where the Jews are standing over here and they're thinking, well, yep, Paul, you're right. Those Gentiles, they really suck. They really, are, they really aren't serving God. And then he's going to flip it on the Jews and he's going to point the finger at them. And the point is, Paul is not condemning people. He's actually just building a case, showing them why they need a Savior. So, I have a couple of uh, reference scriptures here. Turn to Matthew 5, 21-22. Show you what I'm talking about. Matthew 5, 21-22. Jesus pretty much essentially preached the exact same thing. He said this, Matthew 5, not Matthew 21. 21 through 22. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to God's judgment. 
Right? So that's what a lot of people do. They would look at somebody that committed murder and they would point the finger and say, yeah, you deserve hell. You're really bad. You're really horrible. And Jesus says, you've heard that those who commit murder are subject to judgment. But I say that even if you're angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If, look at this. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Wow, that's pretty crazy, right? Jesus said not only if you're basically what he's saying is you can point the finger at somebody that's actually murdered. But if you hate people and you talk negatively about them, you're actually just a murderer in your own heart. So flip over to uh, 27 through 30. You have heard, look at this, you have heard that the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. The Pharisees were really good about this one in Luke chapter 8. They threw a woman out in the middle of the street that was caught in the act of adultery, right? And what did they like to do? They like to point the finger and, and say, look how sinful she is. Look how horrible she is. But Jesus said, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery within his heart. So, let's kind of put this in context. Is Paul, was Jesus saying all of those things to condemn everybody and make them feel like they were super horrible and they were trash and they were worthless? Is that why Jesus was saying those things? Tristan says, I don't know. No, that's not why he was saying that. Why is Paul sitting here listing all of these sins because he just wants everybody to feel, you know, to understand how horrible they are and God's mad at them? No. He's painting a picture. Jesus kind of broadening it because we look at people and we kind of get self-righteous and we think, well, they're bad, but I'm somehow better. And Jesus is basically, he opened it up and said, we have all, if you've even committed that in your heart, if you've hated somebody in your heart, if you've lusted after another person in your heart, you've done the same thing and you're guilty of the same offense. So Paul wasn't condemning them to hell. He was proving that everyone has fallen short and needs a Savior. This is extremely important. Look at verse 4. We can prove it. Because he goes from listing all of these sins. Verse 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn people from their sin. So write this down tonight. We cannot assign a false identity to God. Because what people will do is they'll skip to Romans 1 and they'll start in 29 and they'll look, look at them. They're full of sin. They're greedy. They're evil. They're, they're, they're murderous. They hate people. They're quarreling. They're deceptive. And they paint this picture of God like He's big and bad and angry and He's just going around trying to squash people. But if you read it in context, it's all kind of building up to this climax, which is verse 4, that says, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient that God is with you? So the subject is not the sin. The subject is actually the mercy and the goodness of God. Are y'all following me? Because a lot of people will isolate those verses and make it seem like God's just mad at everybody. 
And then they'll scream from a bullhorn from the side of a street that everybody's going to hell because they're totally missing the context of the passage. What Paul is doing is he's being so vague and so broad so that every single person can actually find something in that list that we can identify with. If you look at that list that we just read, 29 all the way to the end, and then verses 1 through 3, if you can't look at that list and find something at some point in your life that you can identify with, you're lying to yourself. Every single person could say at some point they've been a a backstabber. Right? At some point, you've been envious. At some point, somebody's been full of greed in their life. True. So here's the context. That we have fallen short of the glory of God, but look how wonderful and kind and tolerant and patient God is with you. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Hallelujah. God's goodness, I want you to write this down or highlight this in your Bible. God's goodness leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Now I'm going to say something and I want to explain it first. But I looked at this word. His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin. Who has another translation in the room? What does yours say? So it uses the word kindness. What does anybody else have another translation? What does yours say? Is it the same thing? Yours is amplified as well, isn't it? So it uses the goodness of God. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. I looked at the Greek word that's used there because my translation said kindness, yours says goodness. I wanted to see what it really meant. And it actually means mercy. The mercy of God leads people to repentance, the Bible says. So kind of let me explain this. You have to first have a revelation of your sin in order to have a revelation of His goodness, grace, and mercy. As Christians, once we get born again, we're not supposed to be sin conscious. We're not supposed to run around like carrying around, I'm such a sinner and I'm so bad. No, Jesus set us free from those things. But here's the most important thing. In order to actually receive His mercy, you have to have a revelation of why you need His mercy. Amen. So basically, there, you've, every single person, in order to really step into receiving the grace and mercy of God, has to have a moment in their life where they look at their lives and say, you know what? In and of myself, I'm going to hell. I'm not that great. I'm not that amazing. I haven't been perfect. I don't think everybody else stinks and I'm the greatest that there ever was. I look at myself And I see where I have fallen short, where I am in need of forgiveness, where I have missed it. And then when you understand, He's so kind and patient and tolerant, and He shows us mercy. It says the goodness, this mercy, this grace of God actually leads people to repentance. 
It's this moment when we look at this and we say, I've sinned. I've cheated. I've lied. I've coveted. I've done these things. But then look at this. Romans 5, 6-8. through 8. It says this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most of us would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So when you understand the character of God, how amazing... Because guys, I'm telling you, there's still Christians running around like God's mad at them. Like God's far from them. Like God's distant from them. They're still, we've been talking about this for weeks, but they're still trying to earn things with God. The Bible says that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Before you ever did anything good for Him, He gave everything for you, and He gave everything for me. We have to kind of have this weight this revelation of, of the penalty that is due to us. We understand that the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is what? Death. Hell. That's where I'm going. And God, in spite of me, reaches down while I was still a sinner. He died for me. Then you have this revelation of, wow, that is, that is the mercy of God. That is the goodness of God. That is the grace of God. And that's the revelation that draws people to repentance. Salvation, this is kind of a repeat, but turn to Luke 18, 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Salvation can only start when we humble ourselves. You know why I'm saying this, why I'm even teaching this, and I don't know, Lord, help me if I'm not communicating it right, because I, I, I see it so clearly in my heart. Sometimes it is difficult trying to get what's in here, right, out here, <laughs> to make sense. But, you know, we live in a time where we, you know, we even water down the, 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 the thought about repentance. We don't even teach people repentance even anymore. That you have to repent. That you have, you know, you give an altar call. If you look at most modern churches, they just say something like, hey, if you're tired of doing life alone, amen, come on up to the front and you don't have to do life alone anymore. Well, that's true. When you find Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit, you don't have to do life alone. But th there's no revelation of the goodness, the mercy of God. We have to come to this humbling place. The, the realization of 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 our sin. And I want to tell you, whenever you really do, and we'll kind of get to this in a moment, but most people have a hard time extending mercy to other people because they've never seen what they've been forgiven of. They've never really got a revelation that they've been forgiven. So that's why it's so hard to forgive other people. We're just like, there's self-righteousness. We've got to get self-righteousness completely out of us. 
When you realize that you could, like literally, you've never done anything. You can't earn your way to heaven. You've never done anything. Not that God doesn't love us, but we can't do anything that's really that impressive to God. And yet He shows us His grace. He shows us His mercy. He gives it to, it, gives it to us freely apart from our works by faith alone. So, look at Luke 18, 9 through uh, 14. Jesus told the story of some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people the cheaters, the sinners, the adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. I know most Christians won't say it, but that's how a lot of Christians actually think. Y'all, let me tell you something. I've earned the blessing of God on my life. I fast, I pray, I go to church every week, I tithe. You guys, we, re we really start thinking like that we do something to earn any of this. It actually has to start from a place of totally humbling ourselves. Right. Of realizing where I, without Jesus, let me tell you just about how awesome I am. <laughs> Not at all. So, I give you a tenth of my income, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not to even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. And obviously, that's not what we have to do. I'm not telling you to model that completely. The Bible says we can come boldly before the throne of grace because we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. But I'm talking about coming to this kind of entry point. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that deals with unforgiveness. That's why the Bible, guys, like literally, there's no reason. Jesus said, forgive lest you be forgiven. Which brings me to my next point. Now you can forgive others and show mercy because now when you get to this point, you have a revelation of forgiveness and mercy. We're like more like the Pharisees with Christians most of the time is we want to cast the first stone. Somebody gets emotional. Somebody, somebody does something. We get offended and we just want to sit here and like, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't think that way. You shouldn't be struggling with those things. Or they even do something against us and, and harm you, uh, offend you, hurt you. And then we get bitter and we have unforgiveness. And, you know, in our hearts, we want to condemn that person to hell. But if you really get a revelation of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that God has shown you, it's impossible to project that on another person. Because you're like, man, I was a sinner. I was going straight to hell. So you see, I'm just giving you some context here. Don't 
you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can I tell you, when you actually get a revelation of that, it does mean something to you and it changes things. You know, because when you preach this message, people, they, wanna, they just want to cherry pick it and they'll say, well, you're basically trying to tell people that it doesn't matter what we do then. If we're just saved by grace and it's apart from our works, then it doesn't matter. We can just go on and living in sin. Can I tell you, you're completely missing it and you're not getting a revelation of the mercy that's been extended to you. Because when you actually see how wonderfully kind God is, how, how the grace that He gives, the blessing that He gives us, in spite, or despite, in spite of our unworthiness, how kind and tolerant and patient He is, it does mean something. That's why Paul's like, does it mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Let's read verse 5 through 10. This will be a recap of something we covered in Romans 1. But because of your stubborn refusal to turn from your sin, you are storing up a terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. So, guys, that is a fact. Jesus Christ is coming back. The Bible says that when He comes back that we are going to be gathered before His throne and we're going to give an account to Him for what we've done. So it says this, He'll judge everyone according to what they have done. Obviously, this isn't talking about just good works. This is talking about good works that have come from salvation. Because people could also cherry pick that verse and just basically make it seem like we're going to stand before God and, and He's just going to look at our life and say, well, did you feed enough orphans? Okay, you fed enough orphans. You helped enough people. You helped an old lady cross the street 15 times with, you know, with her groceries. You opened the door for someone. That's great and wonderful, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about good works that have, it comes from a, a, a place of over, an overflowing place of your salvation that you have in Christ. Because good works can't save you. It doesn't matter if you were Mother Teresa and you, you spent your whole life dedicated to religion and denied yourself and helped all these people. There's only one way. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You can have all the good works in the world, but if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's no way to get into the presence of God. It's the only way. So, it says... He will judge everyone according to what they have done. Here's an interesting thought as well. I don't have the reference. But Paul, you know, Paul taught about this. He taught about it in the, to the Corinthian church. That when we stand before God, there's going to be a fire that's applied and the work that we do will be revealed. That only the thing that has eternal value will remain, but everything else will be burnt up. And I think that I don't think Christians understand that. He says that there will be people that barely escaped through the flames. Like they, they get they're saved, they go to heaven, but like a person that barely escapes through the flames. What is that talking about? I believe that that's really talking about a Christian 
that accepted the Lord Jesus as the Lord and Savior, they submitted themselves to Jesus, but they spent their whole life lived in the flesh. They just worked in the flesh. They, everything that they did, it wasn't led by the Spirit of God. They were just led by their carnal nature. And so everything in their life when they stand before God is burnt up. He'll judge everyone according to what they've done, and He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good. Seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. I mean, that could be a whole sermon in itself. He will give eternal life to those that keep on doing good. Seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. People that seek after honor that comes from God and not people, uh, honor that comes from man. But He will pour out His anger and wrath on those who live for themselves who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Guys, can I tell you, you don't have to do anything besides have faith, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and that God raised Him from the dead. That's Romans 10, 9-10. through 10. It says believe in your heart. What is, somebody help me here. Romans 10, 9-10. If you, Romans 10, if you openly declare Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart you're made right with God and openly, openly declaring with your faith that you are saved. So that's all you have to do is be, to be saved is acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. But there's one thing that I can't get around that is true. It says that He will pour out His anger and wrath on those that live for themselves who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. So what does that mean? You can't earn your way into salvation, but obviously when you receive salvation, something is supposed to change in your life. I'm not the judge and I'm not God and Thank you, Jesus, that I'm not. But obviously the Bible's painting a picture that it, you, can't, you can't hold salvation and continue to live a life of wickedness. Nobody can judge a person's heart what they truly believe. But the Lord, only the Lord and that man knows a, a, a man's heart and a man's mind and a man's thoughts. But Jesus said you'll know a tree by their fruit. And just like you know a tree by their fruit, you know people by their actions. So, if we put those things together, so can somebody live a life of wickedness and claim that they're saved? Yes, they can claim that they're saved. And I'm no judge to tell you if you're saved or you're not saved. That's not my place. But at the end of the day, if you're continuing to live a life of wickedness and a life that's pursued after your carnal nature... 
It says there will be calamity, judgment, trouble. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, the Jew first and also the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Here's a good point for you. I want you to highlight that. That's a really good little nugget of theology we're going to go over. God does not show favoritism. So look at this. God gives to all people according to their desire to receive. So what this is talking about, God does not show favoritism. We're going to break this down into two parts. Look at Acts 10.34. This is when Peter was preaching to the Gentiles the first time they were receiving the gospel message. And it says that right before his very eyes, in the middle of his sermon, the Holy Spirit fell, fell in the room and all the Gentiles that were present were filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, they saw them, witnessed them speaking in other tongues. So Peter looks at this and says, he, he sees that the Holy Spirit's been poured out on the Gentiles and he, and he makes the statement, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. God gives to all people according to their desire to receive. What's good news about that is God doesn't pick and choose His favorite people on the earth. You can have as much of Him as you want to have on the earth. There, guys, there's a wide open buffet. A wide open heaven. All of the promises of God and Christ are yes and amen. We have total access to the throne, total access to the presence. We can have as much of him as we want to have. And he gives to all people according to their desire to receive. If you want a little bit of God, you'll get a little bit of God. If you want a whole lot of God, you'll get a whole lot of God. Amen. I'm telling you, this is amazing. It's because we think that God just picks and chooses His favorite people. You know, and one day the Lord actually showed me this. There was men of God that I looked up to. And obviously, people have special callings and anointings and gifts and functions in the body. I understand that. But, but you know, the Bible says that God made Christ to become wisdom itself. All wisdom and knowledge are actually hidden in Christ. So there was great men of God that I looked up to that when they would preach, I'm telling you, it would blow my mind. I'm just like, man, they just got such revelation. Wow, that's just so amazing. And then one day the Lord actually spoke to me, the Holy Spirit, and He said, John, did you know that they're not special? Like, I didn't just pick them. You know what? I'm going to give you something special. He said, there is a storehouse that has a 24-7 open sign, a buffet. They have this wisdom and knowledge, and they got this because they sought me. They got in my presence. They got in my word. They went into deeper places, and I am no respecter of persons. I show no favoritism. The same way that they got it, you can have as much of it as you would like. Amen. And it really changed me. It really like gave me a hunger for the Word of God. And it changed things from being religious where I had to read my Bible to where I was like, Lord, I, I, man, I want to see things in this Word nobody's seen. Amen. You know, because that's the thing about God. He's so big. I know you've probably heard this if you've gone to church, so it's no new thing. But in the book of Revelation, it says that there's these angels around His throne that just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. They just keep saying holy. And I heard one man say one time, you know, they do that for eternity. They never take a break. They never get tired. None of the angels get to a point after a thousand years where they say, you know what, I'm really kind of just burnt out. I've done this enough. You know, let's tag in and let's switch out for a little while. What are they doing? And he said that every single moment, they're seeing a new depth of God, a new side of God. And it's not some phrase that they're just choosing to repeat. They literally, they're seeing a side of God they've never seen before. And their natural response is just to say, holy, holy, holy. And they do that for a thousand years, for a hundred thousand years, for a million years. And that shows you the vastness of God. I know prophet Robin Bullock, he was talking about the universe. And he said, look up at the universe. He said, everything that you see in the sky, how many billions and trillions of stars are there? Everything that you see once existed inside God. Everything that you see in that sky once existed inside God. That shows you how great and how vast our God is. So that's the most amazing thing about this word is you could read this word. I'm telling, I, I meet people all the time. They're like, oh, yeah, I've read, you know, I've read the Bible. I know the Bible pretty well. I'm like, what are you talking about? I could read a book 15 times, 1500 times and go back to that same book and then see something every single time that I've never saw before. Because if you're actually seeking after if you're if you're getting into God's word with by faith, Believing God to show you things that you've never seen, you'll see it every time you read the Word. Every single time. That's why you can't... Man, everything that we do, the Bible says the righteous, we just read this, Romans 1.17, the righteous live by faith. Everything we do has to be in faith. What is faith? It's, it's expecting. It's, it's a guarantee. I know that this is going to happen. What does it mean to read your Bible in faith? I'm not going to read my Bible and hope that God talks to me. Well, I'll read it. And if He does, well, hey man, He does. And if He don't, well, that's okay. Faith is actually saying, I know when I open this Word and I begin to dive into it, I know. I'm fully convinced that the Holy Spirit's going to show me something that I've never seen. The Holy Spirit's going to take me to a deeper level. That's what it means. That's reading your Word in faith. So, God gives to all people according to their desire to receive. You can have as much of Him as you would like. Verse 11, so he says, I see very clearly God shows no favoritism. So if we put this in context, Paul was just talking about judgment. We're going to stand before God. We're going to give an account. We're going to be judged by the good works that we've done. You'll either receive glory or receive trouble and turmoil, right? So he's talking about judgment. And then he makes this statement in verse 11. God shows no favoritism. So again, I'm not going to go super deep into this, but in context, on judgment day, there will be no special privileges. Did you know as Christians, we are all going to be judged by the same thing? The Word of God. So there's not going to be any special privilege. Well, this was my a special person that I liked. That it, no. God shows no favoritism. 
There's only one way to the Father. That's through Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at verse 12. When the Gentiles sin, it says they will be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. So basically, let me break this down into two, two parts real quick. What Paul is saying is, number one, the Gentiles, even though they never had God's law, they, will, they still, it says, uh, they'll still be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. This is just a recap of what we went over last couple weeks. Romans 1.20 says, for no one is without excuse. You guys remember us talking about this? The Bible says that every single human being has an intuitive knowledge of who God is. And as a, when you're born, just like a sea turtle that's planted on the beach that just instinctively knows without their mother to climb out of that the egg and go across the sand and go into the ocean, every single human being has an intuitive knowledge that we came from a Creator, that there is a God. And the Bible says not only do we have an intuitive knowledge, but our entire lives, God calls us. You know, if you're watching online and you're not saved, you're not plugged into church, can I tell you, if you're watching this right now, this is God calling you. This is God extending His hand to you. And the Bible says, when you hear the voice of the Lord today, do not harden your heart. Because if we read in Romans 1, we covered this, there actually is a line where, where you have this knowledge of God but people choose to suppress it, choose to deny it, choose to overlook it, choose to reject it. Why? Because it says they traded the truth about God for a lie. So what does that basically mean? Instead of, instead of embracing this, I know there's a God, and if there's a God, then I have a duty to find out who He is, what His name is, and what I'm accountable to, and what I'm supposed to do with my life on this earth. They actually choose to just latch on to the first thing that appeases their flesh. Spiritual, you know, that's why there's a decrease right now in Christianity, but there's an increase in Middle Eastern religion. You may think, not in Texas, I'm telling you, you go to L.A., you go to New York, there's an increase of Middle Eastern religion. Buddhism, I mean, all kinds of isms, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't study that stuff. I have no idea, but... Why? Because you hear them. Well, Christianity is kind of rough. In this religion, there is no genders. And this religion says homosexuality is okay. This agenda says these things are acceptable. So what does mankind do? Instead of living accountable and seeking out this intuitive knowledge that they know that there is a God, they just grab onto the first thing that appeases, right? Whatever their itching ears are wanting them. It, it, the Bible says in the last days, people will be... Lovers of self. Love what is evil. Lovers of self. And they'll chase after teachers that will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. You see that taking place. So, so the Gentiles, it says, even though they never had the law, they're still going to stand before God. Now the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. The Bible actually says, you know, the Jewish people, which we actually kind of fit into that category more than we did the Gentiles of, of the first century church. Because the Jews had the word of God. 
The Jews didn't just have an intuitive knowledge on the inside of them of this God, but they didn't know who He was. They actually had a revelation of who God was. They actually had the Word of God. They actually had the stories from when God delivered them through the wilderness and Mount Sinai and from Egypt, and they'd seen God. They had experienced God, and yet they still rejected Him. So yeah, they were going to be judged accordingly. So look at verse 13. It says, For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in His sight. So, let me kind of explain this because again, people could cherry pick this and say, so hold on a second. If I obey the law, then I can be made righteous and I don't need Jesus. No, Paul's actually just exposing hypocrisy within the, the, the half-Christian, half-Jewish people that were in Rome at that time. So Paul is calling out the hypocrisy. So what was actually happening was you had these Jews in Rome that were still insisting, we have to follow the law of Moses. These Gentiles are getting saved. These Jews are going over to these Gentiles telling them, you better get circumcised. If you don't get circumcised, you're not really saved. If you don't adhere to our Jewish customs and laws and traditions and holidays, you're not really saved. They insisted on keeping parts of the law. But here's the thing about it, that Paul's just like, I love Paul. He was a straight shooter. He wasn't playing around. He was like, guys, Here's the crazy thing about it. You're like taking a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of Christianity and you're putting it in a bowl and stirring it together and you got a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it doesn't work that way. This is the point that Paul's actually making. Paul was making the point that they were wasting their time and they were wrong. Look what James 2.10 says. For if a person who keeps all of the laws except one I'm sorry, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all the laws of God. Read that again. A person who keeps all of the laws. Does anybody know off the top of their head how many laws and commandments? There were 600 and... 679. Don't, don't quote us online. If you Google it, they're wrong. Okay. We're not exact number, but there was over 600 different laws and different commandments. So think about this. If you made a list of those things, the Bible's saying you, there's over 600. You go through the first 100. I've, I've lived my life. Check, 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 check. The second 100, the third 100, the fourth 100, the fifth 100, the sixth 100. You've done all 600 just perfectly. You get to law 616 and you messed up a little bit. And the Bible says if you missed one, then you're guilty of all of it. Here's the crazy part about it. Here's the point. No one was able to do that. The Bible said the law was actually never given for our righteousness. It was actually given as a guide to point us to Jesus. Jesus Christ was the only human being with God nature that was able to obey and fulfill all of the laws and commands. So what Paul is saying I'll read it again. Merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in His sight. So he's kind of getting to this point. Guys, you're, you're fooling yourselves because the Word says if you miss one, you miss all of it. 
So basically, the point that Paul's making to them that we're going to see again and again throughout Romans is you're either under the law or you're under grace. But you can't be under both at the same time. So why is he saying that? Because he says, if you want to get under the law, good luck. Because you're going to go try it for a little bit and then you really, you're going to realize real fast that you can't do it. And it was actually just painting a picture of something else, which was the person of Jesus Christ. So that's a good one. You can't mix, he was saying, you can't mix Judaism and Christianity. You're either under grace or you're under the law, but you can't be under both. Look at verse 14 and 15, and we're going to close with this tonight. Verse 14 and 15, he says, Even the Gentiles who don't have God's written law show that they know His law when they instinctively obey it even without never having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them what they're doing is right. So here's a point that you can take away. The Bible says when you walk in the Spirit, you won't violate the law. You know, the law was actually, a lot of people don't understand this, and and this is where they get messed up. The law was broken into different parts. There was a moral portion of the of the law, but there was also a a uh, I don't know the exact word, but it makes, it basically was like the the cleansing, the self purification part of the law. What were you gonna say? Sanctifying part. There was a sanctifying part of the law. There was a moral portion of the law. The moral portion is like the Ten Commandments: don't kill, you know, don't covet, don't don't do those things. There was a sanctifying part of the law. So when, the, when I say this, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't violate the law. Well, part of the law, you know, they had ridiculous things like about your hair and your beard and different links. But here's the point. That was all just a picture of the holiness of Jesus. That, that sanctifying part of the law was just painting a picture of Jesus keeping us clean, keeping us preserved, keeping us consecrated and set apart. And it was just painting this big picture of Jesus Christ who is going to come, the Lamb of God, without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, who was perfect, who knew no sin, the Bible says. So, look at Galatians 5, 22-25. When you walk in the Spirit, you won't violate the law. Look what it says. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Look at this. Fruit. Say fruit. Like a tree. An apple tree produces fruit. It's a, it's a byproduct of the tree. When you get the Holy Ghost, this is what it produces in your life. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Look at this. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and crucified them. There. Since we are living by God's Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So what it's saying, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. 
If we actually follow the Spirit in our lives, what will it look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So let's look at back at what Paul said. Even the Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know His law when they instinctively obey it even without never hearing it. They demonstrate that God's law was written on their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them what they're doing is right. I'm sorry, either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So what does that basically mean? The Gentiles, they never had the word given to them that said, thou shalt not covet. They never had that. But yet when they got born again, they instinctively, just by the Spirit's producing this in their life, they, obeyed. They, they didn't have to be told not to do that. They didn't do it. The Gentiles were never received a word that said, hey, don't steal. Hey, don't have any other God before the Lord. They never received any of those words. Here's what's funny. So what Paul is actually saying, because here's these Jews... Right? They were mixing Judaism with Christianity and they like to point the finger and look how holy we are. Look at all the things we observe. Look how we deny ourselves. And Paul was saying these Gentiles never even had the law and they're actually walking it out better than you guys are. When you walk in the Spirit, you won't violate the law. And I'll just kind of close with these final words, but you know, Jesus didn't say you just pray a sinner's prayer. Jesus said you must be born again. Born again. The Bible talks about in the book of Ezekiel, he says, I'll take your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll write my law and my commands upon your heart. I'll, re- I'll put a new spirit, a renewed spirit on the inside of you. That's what it means. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, I think there's a lot of Christians. Really, I'm truly. They've prayed the prayer. I'm not saying they don't believe in Christ. But they haven't been born again of the Spirit. When, the, when you're born again, something happens from the inside. It's not somebody standing over you with a checklist. That every day, you know, you get to the end of your day and somebody comes in your room and they, okay, did you do this? Nope. Okay, check, check, check. And you're just following some code of conduct. You're born, you're changed from the inside out. You're cleansed from the inside out. You're washed from the inside out. God changes the way that you think. He changes the way that you live. The Holy Spirit changes everything about your life. And sadly, sad to say, there's a lot of Christians, I can tell you, they've never had that experience. You know, you know how you have that experience? So I'm giving you all a problem. Let me give you a quick solution. What do you have to do to be born again? Jesus said, if you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask Him? 
So what do I have to, if I want to receive God's spirit and be born again, what do I have to do? I have to ask him. It's that simple. You know why most people, though, don't do that? Because they look at themselves and say, why do I need that? I'm pretty good. I think I'm doing all right. I think I'm good. And then Jesus said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. He told the woman at the well, if you know who I was, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you a river of living water. It's so easy. All we have to do is ask, but it's not just some quick bake, easy bake oven, pop it in the oven. Okay, you, you repeat it after a pastor. There has to be this humbling moment in your life where you truly humble yourself and say, Lord, I need the Holy Spirit. I'm not good. I don't have good thoughts. I don't I, I, I have hatred. I don't love people. I don't, I'm not what I should be, and I know that I can't do this. I need to be born again from the inside out. The moment that you do that, it's supernatural. It'll take place. He'll give it to you so easy. Well, amen. Let's finish this up next week. Y'all, let me pray for you and dismiss you tonight. I love it. I, like I said, I love going verse by verse because you just, this is what the Bible talks about. And we, we teach it, we study it, and we eat on it, and the Lord imparts wisdom into our lives. Father, we love you. We give you all glory. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. I pray that if anything is not understood, Lord, that there would be people, they, they would seek you for answers. That they would... Even look back at this text and dive into it to go to even deeper places, deeper revelation. Father, I thank you for speaking to us. I thank you for feeding us. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills our lives, overflowing a river of living water filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And uh, Lord, we're just so thankful for the Holy Spirit. We love you so much. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in with me as I shared the word of God. If you would like to become more than just a casual listener and want to give to our ministry, you can do so in the following ways. For credit or debit, go to www.nbchuntington.org slash donate. For PayPal, you can send it to NBC Huntington. For Cash App, use dollar sign capital NBCHTX20. Thank you so much. I pray God blesses you abundantly. Until next time, this is John Wallace.